Welcome to another episode of BroPod, where we talk to those that defy convention from the worlds of sports, media, finance, and politics. I am joined by my co-host, Kieran McKenna, who has just recovered from the um, Euro qualification <laughs> for Scotland. I would have loved the Norwegian, uh, Norway-Scotland final. But uh, you, to be fair to you, you beat Serbia, who we lost to. And I, I, I warned the Scots. Yeah, I said, listen, yeah. so it'll very, be a tough game. Very skeptical. It'll be a tough game. And then Serbia absolutely bottled, bottled it. <laughs> <laughs> they bottled it for eight, nine minutes. And then it looked as if we bottled it on the last minute. But the most Scottish way ever to qualify for a tournament. We did it. And it was incredible. <laughs> what, the first time since 98? Yeah. So and pretty much the year I was born. So that's going to be the first real experience, hopefully. Pandemics to calm down a bit, and we can pro the fans, the nation of Scotland can properly experience it. I'd love to see us able to take over London. Yeah, you go. You have a game at Wembley against England. Yeah. What you know, you couldn't script that better, could you? Nope. And then nope. you have two games at Hampden. Yeah, incredible. I love that. Um, great. The Scotland's doing well. We won't mention Celtic. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, um, you are soon back from. Um, Injury, yeah. So party can uh, enjoy your your services yet again. Yeah, um, kind of halfway there to be honest in terms of recovery. So hopefully, back training in a few weeks' time, and then it's just about trying to fight my way back in the team and contribute as much as I can when when I'm back fit. So looking forward to it. Kieran debatably, uh, he uh, he skipped the game that uh, Greenock Morton, my team, and uh, yeah. and Kieran with Partick had against each other. Uh, highly looking forward to that, and I think he just got a bit scared. But uh, <laughs> that's the way it is, you know. You that's just the maturity kicking in. It was enjoyable from the stand. Yeah, you enjoyed that, didn't you? <laughs> a nice little no-no draw. <laughs> Love that from a defender. Anyway, we have um, we have a great guest on. Really, really. Uh, happy with this one we just finished it mm-hmm. with none other than grant wall who is one of the most influential voices in u.s soccer journalism um he was a senior writer with sports illustrated for 23 years and has written a couple of books too the new york times bestseller the beckham experiment highly recommended um covering beckham's first 16 months at the la galaxy but also uh you know it's it's a nice little insight into the dynamics of a club and uh, the the, the external actors, so to speak, that uh, that look to uh, interfere and have a, play a role. Um, and he's also written The Masters of Modern Soccer, How the World's Best Play the 21st Century Game. Um, he wrote, by the way, if um, for those uh, you know rather familiar with sport, he wrote the Sports Illustrated cover on LeBron James when he was dubbed the Chosen One when he was 17. Uh, that's uh, one of my first exposures to LeBron James, and I've been a big LeBron James fan since. So that's pretty cool. He also wrote the cover story on uh, on Freddie Adu, the most celebrated and um, high, most highly paid player in the MLS. This was right before Beckham, and he was 14. And on that topic, he's also now uh, come out with a new podcast series uh, called Freddie Do the or the American Prodigy Freddie Adu, which we would highly recommend. There's two yeah. episodes out, um, and then he also has got his uh, his other podcast, Football with Grant Wall, and uh, where he talks to a lot of prominent uh, players, coaches, and broadcasters within uh, the American game. Um, what you know, bio lies. Quite the bio, quite the bio. He's been everywhere, and so there's there was so much to pick, and we could have we you know we could have still <laughs> we could have just asked him questions yeah, on questions. We could have had a whole series. Exactly, exactly. We could have had the series with him, 
Um, but uh, really, really good guy yeah. and very enjoyable chat. Yeah. Um, we've obviously had journalists, kind of football journalists on earlier on in the podcast, but it's been a while since we had one on. So it was good to have Grant Wall on. And I think what we found in the past with journalists is that they have such perspective just because of how much they've experienced interviewing people and kind of observing and almost investigating to some degree. And the anecdotes that they share, and you look at Grant Wall, he's had first-hand close experience with some of the, like, without a doubt, the world's biggest superstars in sport, David Beckham, LeBron James, uh, Freddie Adu, who was the big a kind of wonder kid in America. And so his perspective, the stories he told, just incredible stuff, really. And we try to get out as much as we could as possible within the time frame. It's an ability to see the bigger picture, which I think is very fascinating um, with someone like Grant Wall and being able to put that very succinctly in yeah. words, yeah. which I think is great. So um, we touch upon a fair amount of topics that I mentioned in the bio in terms of Beckham, um, Freddie Adu, LeBron James, um, and, uh, and you know, and a talk about the American culture as well yeah. in terms of the American arrogance. And no, it's not only it's positive and negative, how that works both ways. The obsession with Wonder Kids. Um, and there has been a common thread over the last few episodes where we've had um, a lot of, uh, you know, American guests. American, yeah. But um, I think, you know, it's something we're fascinated by. It's mm-hmm. growing. And I think there is a uh, there is a respect in terms of how I do things and, and, and learn from that. Um, and so hopefully you enjoy it as much as we did. So uh, catch up on our chat with Grant Wall after the break. This podcast is sponsored by Pimp Society, a sustainable Norwegian fashion brand. Provides hand-painted and customized designs, especially on secondhand Levi jeans. It is, like I said, a sustainable and vintage fashion brand. I have quite a few items in it, uh, a unique form of expression. Um, So check them out on Instagram at Pimp Society, on Facebook under Pimp society and you can find them on their website at guess what pimpsociety.no now to our chat with grant wall there's a large influx of american talents now on the big european stage you got mls expansion and growth um you got a fair amount of north north american owners across europe and then you got the world cup on the horizon for you you know you've been involved in in, in within the soccer in america for so long is this is this one of the most exciting times for you to be a to be a soccer journalist now? It is cool right now. I mean, we've seen uh, a lot develop over the years, and so I, I think what one thing that happened um, when all of these young Americans ended up at big clubs recently, so you know Barcelona, Dortmund, Chelsea, Leipzig, Juventus, people acted like it was this overnight thing and that end result may may have seemed overnight but that was the culmination of a long process where you've seen guys develop and the system develop here in the u.s and and i wouldn't even say culmination because i i think it might just be the start i've had some people ask me is this a golden generation of young american players And, and i'm like maybe but it might also be just the start of this new phase of American soccer where this becomes much more regular. 
that it won't stand out as a golden generation. I guess that's what everyone's hope is. But, you know, like in, in terms of like just excitement around American soccer, there have been a lot of things to, to be excited about over the years. But especially right now, when you can look forward to a World Cup here in 26 and and you see what's happening domestically, but also internationally with American influence on the sport, I don't think there's the stigma or the different stigmas that we used to see, you know, 15, 20 years ago, where soccer had a stigma inside the United States, but American soccer also had a stigma in Europe and places like that. It's, uh, I also find it fascinating because you had your chat with Jesse Marsh and who I think, uh, you know, uh, is he's very, he's very clear on the way he wants to play and very clear in terms of what his contribution is. And I thought he was, uh, it was impressive to hear him, to hear him speak. And then he spoke about uh, American arrogance in terms of how players were able to, I don't know, to be able to make an impact uh, abroad, um, including himself. And it's funny to compare that to the debate back in 2018 or 2017 when America failed to qualify for uh, for the World Cup. And I saw a clip recently from, from Tyler Twelman, I think, where he said, uh, you know, the reason we're not making it is because it's American arrogance. We think we're making it. So it's, so it's interesting to juxtapose those uh, two angles because in one way it's a strength and another it's a weakness. How do you see it? I, I mean, I'm always into the words, right? Mm-hmm. And, and words people use and what they mean, especially when that can be a changing meaning over time. Because I, I think traditionally the word arrogant or arrogance with the United States is not viewed as a positive, right? And... um and yet I see it more lately popping up where it's sometimes used as a positive thing. And the only thing I could compare it to maybe would be it's a little bit like in the early 1960s, John F. Kennedy saying, we're going to put a man on the moon by the end of this decade. And it happened. But if you looked at like the available evidence in the early 60s, I don't think you would have said that it was a, uh, a done deal that that was going to happen, right? And so there is this sort of tradition, I think, of a sort of positive Americanness of we don't really want to hear why we can't do something. We're just going to be ambitious and do it. And I think maybe that's what Jesse Marsh was relating to a little bit. Like my question to him was, is there anything that you as an American can bring as a coach to a European team that might actually be something that they don't get as much of in Europe? And, and that's where he responded in saying that there was a, a bit of this American arrogance of thinking that, yes, I can bring some things from a team building perspective. And it also made me think a little bit of like interviewing Sir Alex Ferguson for the first time back in 2003. And, you know, he talked a lot about Vince Lombardi being a big influence. I've heard John Wooden, another American coach in a sport outside of soccer being mentioned by Jose Mourinho. Like, and so there is 
an element of thought at some of the highest levels in European soccer that American coaches, whether it's in soccer or especially in other sports, have had a big influence on on soccer coaches in Europe over the years. So um, I take what Jesse's saying as he thinks he can he can succeed in Europe and, and, and go somewhere where a, an American soccer coach really hasn't before. In, in some ways, obviously, he already has in Champions League. Yeah, yeah, there is that pervading positivity, huh, Kieran, in terms of yeah. in terms of the exposure we have to, to to soccer. But just in general, the 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 positivity that surrounds uh, ambition and going for it. And I mm-hmm. think uh, I think he mentioned it also in terms of being vocal about your goals and hopes or dreams and whatnot. Yeah. Um, which I respond very well to. I think very, I think it is very exactly. Grant, you had Kyle Krause recently on your podcast and for those who don't know he is American and he recently became the majority owner of Parma the Italian Serie A club and you kind of compared to what he's done in terms of investing in an already established club in Europe with the prospect of buying an MLS franchise and expansion team and to give some context right now that would cost around 300 million dollars and that's before you've built a squad and before you've built the stadium and you asked him, I'm going to ask you the same question that you asked him, just to get your perspective on it. But why do you think there is this willingness to still buy expansion teams in the MLS, given how much it costs? And is it a good investment? I'm fascinated by this topic and this decision. If like, if you're an American who wants to own a soccer team, is it smarter to buy a team in Europe? or to try and start an MLS expansion team, because the amount of money we're talking about to start an MLS expansion team is off the charts these days and completely different to what it was just a few years ago. So Charlotte paid an expansion fee of $325 million. That's before they even start uh, you know, building their team. That's you know, they're not building a stadium. They're gonna play in the NFL stadium, but a lot of these expansion teams are building their own stadiums. Um, and there is an element out there in the U S that has used the term pyramid scheme to describe what they see as MLS in these ever increasing expansion fees, because right now we don't see a television deal that brings in any appreciable amount of money compared to what the TV deals are for the Premier League. And right now you can buy a Premier League team mid to lower table for less than it would cost to to start an MLS team. So basically this is, I, I don't, I, I wanna be clear. I don't think MLS is a pyramid scheme, but I think it is still a risky investment. MLS is is banking on scarcity. And that's a big reason why the, the expansion fee prices have gone up, but you know, I do wonder how many teams eventually MLS is going to let in because, you know, right now they're at 26, they have given, you know, it's going to get to 30. Then the question is how much higher will it go? And will they potentially at some point have an MLS one and an MLS two with promotion and relegation in just inside that where they could get to 40 teams potentially. Um, 
I, I will see. I mean, like, it's just very striking to me that MLS expansion fees were only like $5 million back in 2005. Now they're $325 million, and you've got cities and potential ownership groups lining up for it. And I guess Don Garber, the MLS commissioner, deserves a ton of credit for that. Um, but I don't think it's a slam dunk for anyone investing in the league. Uh, and so um, I'm, I'm just very curious to see how it moves forward. There's a new television deal coming in 2023. I don't think it's going to be for that much more money than the current one, but we'll see. It is. I mean, I've, I read the, the Beckham experiment book that we'll touch upon later, um, but it's always, it's always been investing into the propos proposition that soccer will indeed make it, whatever that means, whether that is an end goal, whether that will ever be reached. But that is a risky business, let alone trying to make money from a from a soccer club as well is not maybe your, your safest investment. But I think it's an exciting growth. So we'll see. In terms of, I just want to pivot into, you know, you've had a very prominent career and and, and maybe some of the, the, the kind of first uh, global exposure one had to you and your work was with the cover story of LeBron James uh, and for Freddie Adu. And see, the tabloid version would be, okay, let's let's compare these two. One makes it, one doesn't. It's the pressure that comes with that. You try to explore this in your new Freddie Adu series. The first two episodes are brilliant. I think it's Thanks. very interesting because you do explore a lot of important topics in terms of what determines what whether one makes it or not. But in terms of that cultural obsession about young kid wonder kids, young athletic genius, particularly in America, is fascinating. Here and I have a discussion. Yeah. We've tried to like, how do we ask him this the best? But I just want to know, what is it about this obsession in America with, with Wonder Kids? You know, you've covered it, obviously. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I was sort of on the prodigy beat for Sports Illustrated back in the early 2000s because I was doing our first stories on LeBron. I was doing our first stories on Freddie Adu right around the same time. Um, I Here's what I wonder is, and I don't know if this is, totally an American thing because I, I, I think back to like Mozart, right? You know, like, you know, here's a guy who, you know, as a child was doing incredible things with music and was being recognized for that. So I think there's sort of a history of maybe this is just some sort of basic human fascination that comes with cultural development and, and that extends into sports. Um, I do think it was really heightened in the late 90s, early 2000s, because you had Tiger Woods in golf. You had Serena Williams and Venus Williams in tennis. You had LeBron, Freddie Adu. You had Michelle Wee in golf. And some of those have, you know, people have totally succeeded. Some have not. Um, but... I think we do want to see greatness and when a, someone who's so young has it that it, it's almost as if there's no ceiling to what they could achieve and, and we have a real appreciation for that. Now, sometimes that can go in a negative direction, I think, when it comes to a teenager who isn't fully developed in a in a in a behavioral sense, emotional sense, physical sense, sometimes having a difficult time dealing with that type of 
public exposure. And, and so I, I do think as I got older, so I was in my 20s when I was doing those stories on LeBron and, and Freddie Adu. I do think in recent years, I have pumped the brakes a little bit more on how I cover young emerging superstars because I still cover like Christian Pulisic I remember my first interview with him back at Dortmund back in probably 2016 2015 you know like we didn't we didn't put that on the cover of the magazine put it that way and and he was developing in a situation that I think was better suited for his growth and didn't have the media attention in Germany or from the United States that Freddie Adu had. And I do think that that media attention is something that a superstar has to deal with at some point. But the system here in the United States and Freddie's own choices and the choices of the people around Freddie Adu put him in this glare in this media situation at the age of 13 and 14 and I do think that was difficult for him to deal with I know it is because he told me it was like Marcus mentioned we've listened to the first two episodes of the American Prodigy Freddie Adu and it's a fascinating story Um, but I think it was in the first episode I heard a statement and when I heard that I just thought it was like the most absurd thing ever and I think there's maybe some bias and some disinformation on my side of it, but it was from Phil Knight, who was a Knight founder at the time, who said they thought Freddie Adu would have have more of an impact on soccer than LeBron James, Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods had in their sports. Can you tell us, in your opinion, what you thought about that statement at the time? Was it overdramatic or was it justified? I mean, I can remember when Phil Knight said that statement to me and this was in the spring of 2004 right before Freddie Adu's first professional game with DC United he's 14 years old he's just done a television ad with Pele that tells the the country to look at him in terms of Pele and puts all sorts of pressure on him and so I was I was surprised that Phil Knight would say this because even during the excitement at the time the three people he mentioned Tiger, Jordan, LeBron are like basically the Mount Rushmore of Nike, his company. And, and so to, it was, I I almost wonder what like Michael Jordan would have thought of that quote (laughs) because, you know, like it's so absurd. It was absurd at the time. And, and I remember at the end of the quote, after Phil Knight says this, he's like, I probably just put a lot of pressure on Freddie by saying that. So even he was aware. But I, I think what happened in those time at, at that time was people who were not soccer people but had positions of great influence said and did things that were not probably in Freddie's interests. So that quote was one of those things. Uh, whoever, whichever adult decided to put Freddie in the ad- advertisement with Pele, that's another example. Um, there were, there was a, a, a sports business reporter named Darren Rovell, who, when Freddie was just 17 years old, wrote, I want to be the first to call Freddie Adu a failure. So 
that was with a 17 year old kid and like why would he want to be the first to call him a failure and here was another person who was not a soccer person and so you had a lot of outlandish stuff being said by people who really didn't know much about the sport and I, I think that had an impact as well I mean, the ever, I mean, it is a discussion that will go to the end of time in terms of what is it that determines if someone makes it or doesn't. And that's part of your exploration throughout the series. And in some ways, you can say, you know, Freddie Adu, just for context, gets signed at 14, is one of the most celebrated MLS players at the time, and he's 14 years old, gets a multimillionaire contract at Nike, half a million base salary at DC United when he's 14. So there's a lot, there's a lot of factors in play, but he's earn a lot of money, like comparative to others, you can say arguably made it, but relative to expectations, not so much. But you have then LeBron James, who, by the way, is 17, you know, is three years older, but he somehow exceeds the expectations of, of the chosen one and on the cover. And you said that it kind of, with him, it, you said it, it kind of gave him an aura in sense uh, that he was able to take with him because the Sports Illustrated cover is, is before iPhone and Twitter and all that. It's a... Um, it's a life-changing, um, has a life-changing impact. But so you, immediately you can say, okay, this guy handles the pressure, this guy doesn't. But obviously it's, it's, it's more nuanced than that, or else there wouldn't be a series in a way because there's a lot of factors into play. What are the other determining factors in terms of making it? Perhaps that was in favor of LeBron versus Freddie Adu. And what preconceptions are important to dispel in a way in terms of saying, oh, well, that's why he didn't make it. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Um, like, I do think the difference in age between LeBron and Freddie makes a real difference. There's a, a big gap between a 17-year-old and a 14-year-old, and there's a lot more uncertainty around the 14-year-old. Um, and we also get into later in, in the Freddie Adu series, the question of did people really think he was the age he said he was because that was always something that trailed Freddie too. Um, in terms of who, you know, how, who is around a player, who is influencing a player and, and how do they deal with not just failure, but how do they deal with success and, and how we measure success. And that's always an open question. And in my interview with Freddie Adu for this series, and I had covered Freddie a lot from 2004 to 2010, but I had not interviewed Freddie in 10 years. I wanted to make, to try as hard as possible to get Freddie to be introspective about his own role, as well as the role of others in his career not going the way he wanted it to. And he actually did have some self-introspection. He felt like... Um, he could have worked harder. He simply did not work as hard as he could have, in part because of all the promotional obligations that he had. Um, but he said that was an issue over the years. He also said that he just made a really bad decision when he got to Benfica and after the first season there in 07-08, insisted on going out on loan where he could have decided to fight and stay at Benfica and, and get playing time. And he feels like he should have done that uh, instead. And so there was that. Um, you know, LeBron, when I first did 
uh, the cover story on him. He was 17 years old. He was playing in the NBA within a year and a half and already on sort of the, the track to succeed. Um, and so I, I think there were, was a bit of a mature, there was, a, there was more maturity with LeBron than with Freddie. You know, I, I do talk to a lot of people around Freddie for this series, and they say that um, money and how to spend money became an issue. Now, Freddie made around $8 million in his career. And so that in itself, you could say, that's, that's success, right? Um, LeBron was on a different scale. I, I, I remember saying, writing in my my first story on LeBron that he could get a $20 million shoe deal. Well, he got an $87 million shoe deal before he had even played in the NBA. And so there are different ways of measuring success. And, and, and one thing I will say about Freddie, and this comes up, I think more toward the end of the series is like this assumption that I think most people have that Freddie would do is a sad story. Freddie doesn't believe that the people around Freddie don't believe that. And in, in an interesting way, I think toward the end of the series, he becomes something of an inspirational story about someone who's still trying to, to play the game professionally somewhere. And that's going to be in Sweden starting next year in like the third division. Um, so there's a love of the game aspect. Um, but the adults around Freddie Adu did not really put him in a position to succeed. And part of that was because MLS was desperate for attention in 2004 they had gone down to two, uh, 10 teams they had cut two teams from the league and they were in danger of failing as a league and freddie gave them this opportunity to get noticed in in the american sports marketplace and he succeeded most definitely in that regard at least in 2004 um but teammates of freddie's like ernie stewart told me that Freddie wasn't allowed to focus on soccer enough. You know, they, you know, the league and the team were asking him to do all this promotional stuff. Uh, Ernie Stewart said he could remember after a game one night in Colorado, they made Freddie sign autographs for fans for a couple hours after the game. And, and Ernie Stewart's with the rest of the team on the bus, and they're leaving to go back to the hotel. And he said, I just felt sorry for Freddie having to stay there and sign autographs for two hours after a game. This podcast is also sponsored by our friends, the Creamy Boys, the official ice cream of Bropod that are Los Angeles first New Zealand style ice cream company located in Santa Monica, California. Join the Cream Nation. So uh, cream on boys and uh, we can't wait to get a hold of your uh, your new t-shirts. Now back to our chat with Grant Wall. There's less thought I have than I don't know if it's because of my bias, because I play football and that's the only thing I've experienced. So I'd like for you to shed whether it's got any credibility to it. But is football more fickle than any other sport? And what I mean by that is, are the margins between success and failure, between making it and not making it, thinner than other sports? Because from my experience, when I think back to when I was 15, 16 playing, the kids who were the best in the team then have not went on to have the careers so far that you would have, you would have expected. And the players who were kind of in the middle of the pack, no one noticed them. They kept their head down. They're the ones that have now 
in my experience, had the best career, having the best careers currently. And I just don't know if that's the same as in basketball, American football. Uh, you know, it's a great question. Um, I do know that if you play the position that Freddie Adu played, that I do think there can be a fairly thin margin for error there because there's there's not a huge difference between being that guy who can provide a real spark to an attack and have that viewed in a positive way, like that guy's a good player, and then you guys have heard the term luxury player, like a player that is just not essential, who can like show some flashes, but just doesn't do it enough to make them essential, indispensable in every game. And what was so confounding about Freddie was he could never do it at club level. He was never essential at club level, never earned a regular starting spot, basically anywhere he went, the more than dozen clubs that he went to. And yet he would have these summer tournaments with the United States youth national teams and even the senior national team at the 2011 Gold Cup, where he showed that he could be very influential in the attack. And so that was one of my central questions in this series was what happened when Freddie was with those national teams that went well, and then he couldn't carry it over to club level. And people told me that he just found, they thought Freddie found a level of discipline inside a controlled national team environment in a, you know, in a short-term tournament that he just never found that discipline on a regular basis at club level. But that was what, part of what was so frustrating about him. I, I remember one coach said to me, if, if Freddie is a C-list Lionel Messi, can you build your team around a C-list Lionel Messi? Um, and I mean, it's a good question, but obviously he never did because he never got on the field on, on a regular basis at club level with um, a bunch of different coaches and coaches just want to win. On the topic of star factor, and perhaps, you know, we touched upon it, the MLS perhaps not being ready for that kind of star power or, or because of that wanted to exploit the much needed attention that it was it needed, um, you know, commercially, financially, etc. You then wrote the Beckham experiment, which Kieran can attest to I consume within a couple of days because Beckham was my hero uh, growing up. But I also found it so I really, really enjoyed the book, and I'm going to give a shout out to my major, which thankfully <laughs> can I can make some kind of reference to here. You make an anthropological deep dive into uh, the galaxy culture and club and the mechanics behind it, um, and it proved, you know, as a turning point for you because you became, from what I understood, a full time soccer journalist at Sports Illustrated. After that, after becoming a New York Times bestseller, so good on you. Um, but What's what makes that book even for me better is that those 60 months or so that you follow that club, they do terribly in terms of the expectations <laughs> that Beckham uh, brings with him. So you have this team that's more in like organizational dysfunction, lack of on-field success. And then Beckham, who's quite frankly, isn't performing up to the, you know, quite frankly, pretty grand 
expectations. Why did it go so wrong during those during the time there? I mean, and there's a link to the infrastructure in MLS around the Freddie Adu era, which was 2004 to 2006. And then is the David Beckham era of MLS from right after that, from 2007 to 2012 or so. And the first two years of that Beckham era, I don't think the infrastructure was there in MLS or with the LA Galaxy to create a successful situation. Uh, so I think there is, actually is a link to the Freddie Adu situation because I don't think MLS had the infrastructure to support Freddie Adu when they had him that they needed. What's interesting about Beckham's time in L.A. is that my book was about the first two years, which were a disaster on the field. And it's a, a little unfortunate that my book could not have been about the entire five-year period that Beckham had because they did turn things around and they won titles once Bruce Arena came in to coach the team and run the operations, once they got Robbie Keane in. And I, at least in the paperback version, which came out after Beckham's third season, 2009, they had gotten to the league final. I was able to talk to Landon Donovan about how things had been repaired and they had gone from being a terrible team to a winning team. And that was an interesting story as well. But when Beckham first got there to LA, like here you had a guy making $50 million a year, including endorsements, sharing the field with players who were actually playing, who were making like $17,000 a year. And it like, and those guys were interacting in the locker room. That's why Alan Gordon is such a big character Cold in the team. book My because, <laughs> because <laughs> Alan Gordon had a personality to, to hang with David Beckham, but he was one of the guys who was not making any money at all. And, and that to me was a fascinating study about how did Beckham deal with this inside the team and in my career usually when you write for Sports Illustrated and you do a story on somebody you you parachute in to a team that's doing really well that's why you're writing about them and you spend a week with that team and you write a story and that's kind of what you have this was a totally new experience for me where I was following the Galaxy for those first two years that Beckham was there, whether they were good or bad, they happened to be bad. And I wasn't writing a story for that week. And so I still find it interesting that so many of my interviews, whether it was with Landon Donovan or Alexi Lawless, who was the GM, like so many of my interviews began with them asking me, is this for Sports Illustrated or is this for the book? And if it was for the book, which meant it wasn't coming out that week, they would tell me more. And, and so in the end, the, the Galaxy was so bad that I never wrote about them in Sports Illustrated. And so it was all for the book. And the, you know I had the recorder running. These guys knew what they were saying was on the record. But they said some really explosive things, including Landon Donovan, including Alexi Lalas, other players on that team. And I did feel like I got more inside a team than I ever had before. And I'm still surprised that the Galaxy didn't set up 
some sort of structure where Landon Donovan could go to someone and vent inside the club about what was and wasn't happening and why they were so bad and what Beckham's arrival meant for him as the top American player. And I became the guy he vented to. And I felt like his psychologist. And so a lot of times what had happened was when I would do an interview with Donovan or another player inside the Galaxy, I would tell him information at the start before we even started the interview, information about his own team that he didn't know that I had learned. And then he would feel, I think, that like he would share what he knew, some of which I hadn't heard or just his opinions, which had value in and of themselves. And so it is an interesting project when you embark on a book deal and you don't know how the team is going to do. Like, I, I just wanted the Galaxy, those two years, to be either really good or really bad. I didn't want them to be somewhere in between. But I also knew I couldn't control it. I was following the story. And... The only thing that's, I guess, unfortunate is I had a really good relationship with Beckham before that. You know, we had done a couple of really big interviews for Sports Illustrated magazine, including when he joined the Galaxy in 2007. And, and when the book came out, he and his people didn't like what was in the book, but I think they confused it with me saying the stuff, the most explosive stuff was being said by his own teammates and other people inside the galaxy. And I didn't have control over whether they were good or bad. I just followed the story and it's taken a long time, but I think finally <laughs> 11 years later, you know, David Beckham is still involved with MLS. He has a team that he owns in, in Miami and uh, I think we're finally in a position where we might be able to do an interview again at some point. But it's it's been a long, slow process. <laughs> That's brilliant. Grant, was it, what was it on your side that allowed these players to open up to you? You spoke about the fact that because it was for a book that was coming out years down the line or because they were frustrated and they just wanted to vent. But was there any particular skills or qualities that you had learned as an interview that allowed them to open up more? I mean, I look back on that experience and I have, a, I have a lot of good memories just from a process perspective of journalism. I, I felt like I felt like I earned it. I, I was living in Baltimore at the time. My wife was at Johns Hopkins and I was flying across the country all the time to cover a team in Los Angeles. Sometimes I would go to Los Angeles. Sometimes I would go to a road game. Um, you know, I can remember... Uh, fairly late in the 2008 season going to Columbus, Ohio at a point when like the media like uproar, you know, all the media commotion following David Beckham had died down. They were a bad team. And that was a moment where I was one of the few journalists there, you know, and it, it was so crazy. Just, I don't think David Beckham had ever, been used to losing that much in his life. You know, I think I went back and looked at how many games he had lost in his entire career at Man United and Real Madrid. He never lost anything close to what he lost those first two seasons with the Galaxy, and I think it did affect him. Um, but, like, I put in the time to travel and do interviews face-to-face. -face. People saw that I was going to the trouble to, to do that. I think that helped. And 
um, after a while, when you're doing interviews every two or three weeks with the characters of, of the team, they get used to your presence. And it's, it's kind of like the guardrails go down and, and they just get used to it. Um, it was interesting at the start, though, because Beckham himself, even though I'd had a good relationship with him based on the Sports Illustrated stories, like, is a conglomerate, basically. And they, if they were going to participate one-on-one, -on -one, they wanted control of the book. They wanted a lot of money for him to participate. And we just weren't going to do that. Um, what they sort of underestimated on the Beckham side was that everyone else would talk to me one-on-one. -on -one. And it, it actually, they realized this very late in the game when they, they started to do a lot of interviews with me on background and because they knew that everyone else had been talking, including Tim Lywicky, the, the guy who had brought Beckham to the Los Angeles Galaxy. Um, it just was a, a really in-depth um, you know, two years. And, and I'm, I, I'm more proud of that book than any single thing I've ever done. And just the ability to, to get it done and, and turn it around and, and, uh, and what, what's in there is I feel I'm, I'm really proud of that. As you should be. I think it's a, it's a, it's a great book for, for anyone who hasn't read it. Um, you know, because it doesn't only touch upon, yes, it touches upon Beckham's first first couple of seasons there, but it's, 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 it's representative of something larger in terms of the forces in play behind, you know, in the background and particularly then on, on, on Beckham's side with um, 19 Entertainment, which is his agency and um, the takeover basically of the LA Galaxy and the, the strategy of, 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 of the Beckham camp was a lot more deliberate, calculated and at times cynical um, than I than I thought because the shadow of David Beckham and his team kind of hung out hung over proceedings. There was this aura of secrecy and lack of transparency, which really didn't help. My question then is: Would be does this exist in a vacuum, or is it is it representative of something larger? You know, I, I think Beckham's own people essentially taking over the galaxy. Um, and installing Rude Hullet as the coach, as their choice. And I remember Terry Byrne, David Beckham's best friend, became the guy calling the shots at, at the Galaxy for a while. And um, I think that's also a result of that lack of infrastructure at the Galaxy and MLS when Beckham first arrived. They just didn't have a structure set up to 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 make it successful and it never was until Rude Hulick gets fired Terry Byrne goes away and Bruce Arena gets hired and then goes about changing things in that culture it's, it's kind of crazy because Bruce Arena is doing it again right now in MLS at, at the New England Revolution which is in the final four of the MLS playoffs he just is somebody who gets it how to build teams how to build structures that are successful in a sports sense um i you know when you look at and it's not just soccer it's other sports too like if you have a true superstar coming into a team it's fairly common i think though maybe it doesn't always go public the control that the superstar and the people around him start to exert on the team itself 
you know, I mean, Magic Johnson, I think, had that with the, the Lakers at, at a certain point in time, um, you know, when he was still playing. Um, you know, superstars will have varying degrees of that. Kobe Bryant had that with the Lakers to an extent. And I, I think in the NBA, for some reason, we see this more where a superstar player is able to have a big influence on who the coach is that gets brought in or gets fired. Um, and in the NBA, maybe because there's fewer players, it's not like the NFL, but like you can have players try to get a coach fired and succeed. And some of these Machiavellian situations can end up happening. And we definitely saw that with, with Beckham's group influencing things at the LA Galaxy, you know, and, and that included them you know getting beckham installed as captain of the team and and landon donovan losing that captaincy and the craziness of the way that was sold by like that was communicated from beckham's people to alexi lawless as the gm lawless communicates to donovan but doesn't tell him that beckham's people are initiating it I'm the one who ends up telling Landon Donovan <laughs> that, that Beckham's people initiated it, and then he just loses it. <laughs> so that's, that's where it got really weird um, and, and fascinating. I just like just to sort of follow those um, threads from a reporting perspective and, and find out what the real story was. And, and you don't want to become like a conspiracy theorist, but like, you know, if you talk to enough people and you get their firsthand account of something, I did, I did, it became very clear to me following that LA Galaxy Beckham Donovan situation that what we see reported day to day in the newspapers, there's a, a, an entirely different story going on. And a lot of times people are just lying <laughs> about stuff that's happening on the team. Yeah, absolutely. Can, if you were to take a step back and kind of look at it from the bigger picture and you take the kind of vision of the Beckham team, which was to make soccer matter in the United States, and you compare it to the impact that Beckham has had on US soccer, what is the, what is the verdict right now? You know, I think Beckham deserves a lot of credit uh, for, for a few things. Um, you know, when he joined the Galaxy in 2007, there were just 13 teams in MLS, and there's twice as many now. There's 26. And the league owners were really smart to incentivize Beckham in his first contract that if he stuck around long enough and built the league to the point that expansion values increased dramatically, which they did, he would still be able to buy in as an expansion team owner, I think at 25 million. Yeah, which is a bargain. Which eventually, which looks like a bargain mm -hmm. now, but he's, it, it wasn't when he first came into the league. And so I look back at Beckham coming at age 31, which is earlier than most people would have expected. And he signed a five-year deal. And so, you know, he did try to get out of it. <laughs> at one point to go to Milan, but he ended up sticking with it. And, and I do think he deserves a lot of credit. They ended up being a title winning team. Um, he's put in Beckham a lot of time in the United States, in Florida, in LA, everywhere. 
to to show that he is committed. And I think when my book first came out, it was fair to question that commitment because he was trying to get out of it. But now I don't think you can question his commitment. You know, he's he's had a, a major impact. I, I do think that sometimes we try to make it sound like there's some one silver bullet that's going to make soccer big in the United States. And that's, it's never going to be one thing. It's, it's just a num a lot of different things happening that have helped soccer get to where it is now. But, you know, like in that book, there's a, a large chapter on David Beckham, I think. And I think he deserves that. And, um, you know, as someone who cares about American soccer, I appreciate what he's done. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'll end it with a sporting question. I want to know, you've been everywhere. You've talked to everyone um, and been at most big tournaments. What is your most uh, memorable sporting moment? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, a lot of possible answers uh, on that one, including any of the the three women's world cup titles that i've seen the u.s women win or the men getting to the world cup quarterfinals by beating mexico in 2002 um but and maybe it's because of recency bias here but the, the craziest scene i've ever been involved in was diego maradona's testimonial match uh, I was in Buenos Aires in 2001 at La Bombonera, the Boca Junior Stadium for that, spent an entire you know week there um, just being around that. And Argentina is sort of my adopted country. I spent more time there than any other country outside the U.S. And I do believe that they have a passion for soccer in Argentina that is off the charts it, it, it's it feels different than being at a game in just about any other place in the world and that day felt different than being at any other place in argentina like it was the best distillation of what the argentine people felt and feel for diego maradona that day and so for me it was just uh a privilege to to be there in the stadium to cover it uh to experience something like that and um and obviously it's it's sad uh, terribly that we've lost maradona at, at age 60 um you know but um that day I, I thought about a lot especially recently i can only imagine um Grant, there's so many more. I could ask you, I could go on forever about the book and, and all throughout your career, but um, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, we were really looking forward to this and I really appreciate uh, the time and your answers. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for listening to yet another episode of Bro Pod, the 19th in the line. Um, just as a reminder, you can find Grant's podcasts under American Prodigy Freddie Adu. Uh, that's a podcast series recently released and Grant's Football with Grant Wall podcast where he has a lot of prominent uh, American coaches, players, broadcasters um, on his show. Uh, fascinating and intriguing insight into um, American soccer at this moment of time which is on the growth. 
Um, and you can find us on all of your platforms. Subscribe and review would be much appreciated. Um, so we'll catch up with you next time on our 20th episode.